welcome to Stronger Than Reason. Well, so much for summer music that's going right out the window today. Uh, That's because Skinny Puppy has been percolating in my brain lately. I've talked about them a couple of times in the past. In episode 21, I talked about seeing their final tour show in June. And way back in episode 4, I talked about their live album and video, Ain't It Dead Yet?, And I haven't tackled one of their studio albums yet, so I'm going to rectify that now. And it's tough to say where to start. All of their albums through Last Rites were classics in my mind and pushed the boundaries of electronic music. And all of them were innovative in their own way. So I could talk about their earliest releases like Remission and Bites and how they staked out new sonic territory that countless later bands would try to claim jump. And I could talk about mine, the perpetual intercourse, and how it introduced Dwayne Rudolph Gettle to the world. Or I could talk about Cleanse, Fold, and Manipulate, the first skinny puppy I ever heard. Or Vivisect 6, both of which were packed with fan favorites. I could definitely talk about Rabies, which was one of Industrial Rock's first big crossover stories, with Uncle Al Jorgensen sharing the production seat with Dave Rave Ogilvy. And I definitely will talk about Rabies at some point because it has my absolute favorite Skinny Puppy track, which is Rodent. And if you love that track as much as I do, and you haven't heard the remix that Ken Highwatt Marshall put on YouTube a year or so ago, do yourself a favor and look that up. But Rabies, of course, is also packed with plenty of other amazing tracks, and it's in contention to be my favorite Skinny Puppy album. But for me... The Skinny Puppy Sweet Spot hits just after Rabies, maybe because uh, Rabies was already out by the time I discovered the band, so there really wasn't any anticipation there. For me, listening to Rabies was just part of catching up with the band's material. But it would make me a fan, and it would make me wonder where they were possibly going to go in the future. Now, that actually pins my fandom down to a pretty specific point in time, because Rabies came out at the end of 1989, and the next album would come out at the end of 1990, so pretty productive year for the band, but it means I probably started listening to them in the early part of 1990. And, you know, thinking back to that year, that, that time was pretty transformative for me. It was the end of high school, and I used to keep a journal back then, Uh, you know, for the years around high school and college. And it's pretty funny to go back and read it now. And thank goodness it only exists in paper deep in my crawl space. It's not something that I would want to be too accessible. And it's not really something I look at much these days, just from time to time, every couple of years. But it's pretty interesting to me, at least as a record of what happened during that time. And, you know, I suspect for a lot of people, those years from high school to whatever comes next is a pretty wild ride. You have friends coming and going, you're living in different places, you have work and school, and you're making decisions that profoundly affect the rest of your life. Hopefully good decisions, but we've all made some bad ones too. That's just the way it goes. So to have a record of my thought processes at that time is pretty strange. And for that, I have to credit my dad because he suggested that I write that stuff down that I might want to look back on it someday, maybe for a laugh. (laughs) So I I had done some journaling even as a much younger kid, so trying it again seemed like a good idea. Plus, my English teacher that year got us all into daily journaling. 
And her motivation was really just to get us to write more. She had the idea that getting ideas onto paper would become easier the more we did it, and it hardly mattered what we were writing, but we spent the first 10 minutes of every class just doing it. And I remember that it did become easier, and by the end of the year, we were all pretty proud of our journals, and we realized that, you know, she had changed us for the better. So it seemed pretty natural to me around that same time to start a private journal of my own. And if I recall, it started around that summer of 1990. And, you know, I did a lot of growing up that year. I stopped hanging out with my old crowd, you know, the neighborhood gang. And now that I could drive, I hung out with friends my own age who were doing things like getting me into more music. And we all spoke this common language of alternative music. It was really important to me. And I imagine, uh, like for many of us, uh, music was a way to identify your people. And once I did that, I kind of never looked back. And that meant, unfortunately, that some of those old friendships changed. Some people even got pissed off. But I was looking forward. And to me, Skinny Puppy and the rest of these bands I'm talking about in this show were the soundtrack to me becoming the person I am today, for better or worse. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that there was me before discovering this music and me after, you know, the adult me. So let me talk about first hearing Too Dark Park, which is the album I'm going to talk about today. So anyway, imagine us that summer wrapping our heads around these new bands. Uh, Skinny Puppy was entirely unlike anything I had been listening to even a year earlier. Uh, prior to getting into alternative music, my collection consisted of basically Rush, and that was it. And I did have a copy of Pac-Man Fever on vinyl, which I still have. And I had a copy of k Hit Explosion on vinyl, which I also still have, and which is actually pretty badass. I might have to do an episode on that. Uh, I had a, a bunch of dubbed cassettes, too. And I do remember I had Def Leppard's Hysteria. I had, like, ZZ Top's Afterburner. I had Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation. You know, and that's the kind of stuff that I was listening to when I was... 16. And of those bands, of course, I'm still a huge Rush fan. Obviously, I did a whole episode on a Rush album, and I'll probably do more. I also dig ZZ Top. I mean, who doesn't appreciate ZZ Top? They're something else. But to me, the rest of those bands are only so much 80s nostalgia, all that FM radio stuff. So if you can imagine me after listening to FM radio bands, how mind-blowing it must have been when I first heard Skinny Puppy. Uh, before my buddy, I remember, first put on Cleanse Fold and Manipulate for me, I remember he said something like, you might not like this. It might be too intense. And I was like, too intense? <laughs> like, bring it on. And First Aid came on, the first song on that album, and it just kind of blew me away. You know, the beat, the samples, the voice. They were just so different from anything else I'd ever really listened to. It was an utterly unique sound. And yet, it was a sound I'd kind of been searching for ever since I first heard some prototypical synth tunes like Axel F, you know, by Harold Faltermeyer, and even the theme tune to Miami Vice. Like, there was something even in those those corny, very commercial productions that, like, spoke to me. Like, yeah, this is really the stuff you're into. You just don't know where you're going, but this is the right direction. And I had listened to some other, you know, alternative stuff by that point. I'd listened to some Nine Inch Nails and Ministry and Knights of Reb, but none of that really sounded like Skinny Puppy. They were their own 
kind of unique thing, and we really got into them. So when we heard that summer that a new album was on the way, we were pretty stoked. And their last album was Rabies. It was this collaboration with Uncle Al, and Ministry had just released The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste, which we had in heavy rotation. We all knew that Ogre was on tour with Ministry, playing keyboard and singing on their cover of Smothered Hope. So all signs pointed toward a continued collaboration. Skinny's, Skinny Puppy's future seemed to be going in parallel to Ministries. You know, more guitars, more rock, and we were there for it. Now, as I remember it, the album just appeared one day. That's how it was back then. It wasn't there, and then it was. Uh, you knew it was out when someone you knew saw it at the mall and picked it up <laughs> and brought it into school. So we weren't on the internet, obviously, in high school. There was no online anything. And our social media consisted of the letters page in Spin Magazine. So one day someone showed up with a new puppy album, and lo, it was this thing called Too Dark Park. Uh, and it surprised us in a few different ways. For one, Al Jorgensen wasn't on this record at all, nor did it sound like anything he ever might have come up with. The guitars weren't very prominent. Instead, it was a sampling tour de force. For another thing, the cover art wasn't done by Stephen R. Gilmore, who had done all the prior Skinny Puppy sleeves. He was the guy who gave them their visual look, what we would call their brand today. And this record didn't fit with their brand at all. Instead, it was this somewhat cartoony but gory painting by a guy named I Brain Eater, otherwise known as Jim Cummins. It looked like nothing else that it ever had the Skinny Puppy name on it. But what really grabbed our attention was the logo. He had designed this amazing Skinny Puppy logo for the band, this SP logo. And you'd know that that bad boy immediately went on a thousand notebook covers and jeans jackets. <laughs> just for sure. And not to mention tattoos. Uh, it's just a fantastic design. So he ended up giving them an entirely new look. And overall, Too Dark Park was like a breath of fresh air. It was something that we never could have predicted. And the band were like, you know, you think we're going this way? Surprise, sucker, we're going that way. And that's what made it sound so fresh. And maybe my favorite thing about it, though, is that it's not geared towards singles. They weren't really looking for a hit here. They did release a couple of singles from this album. But in my opinion, it works best as an album especially if you listen to it from start to finish without any shuffling. Uh, the track sequence, the pacing, and the dynamics take you on a real journey, and it sounds unmistakably like Skinny Puppy, but within that it has its own sound. It doesn't really sound to me like any of their other albums. That's just my opinion. There's seems like there's a lot more sampling going on here. Uh, there are very few guitars, as I mentioned, some of the songs are groovy, but there's nothing here that's really dance-oriented. Like, none of these songs jump out at me as being geared toward filling a dance floor or having a bunch of DJs produce fancy 12-inch mixes. To me, this collection of songs really is cohesive. It goes together like puzzle pieces. Uh, in fact, it was a little weird for me to hear them play two of these tracks, Tormentor and Morpheus Laughing, at the concert last month, out of context with the rest of the album. And it's sort of like when Latter-day Pink Floyd would transition from Breathe to Wish You Were Here instead of On The Run. Like you just come to expect one thing leading to the next and when it doesn't happen, it's kind of jarring. 
Also, this music, I should say, is totally uncompromising, and it shows even more range than their previous material in terms of noise, in terms of groove and atmosphere and power. And it's clear that this is a band that's taking you, the listener, for a ride. And they're not necessarily taking you where you want to go, but it's going to be an exciting ride. And even now, I have a hard time believing that they chose such a weird song as Spasmolytic as a single. This is probably the noisiest, most abrasive song on the whole record. And, you know, then they went and made a truly bizarre video for it. Uh, They definitely didn't make that kind of decision to win over the general public. They didn't want their fans or anyone else to be comfortable with that song, with that video, because it's not pop music, unlike, say, early Nine Inch Nails. And you can even argue that Ministry bent toward pop around this time, at least a pop format, verse, chorus, verse. They were doing it as metal, but it was still kind of pop. Uh, They were going for a more straightforward rock sound on The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste. And one thing you could say about Skinny Puppy, they never really bent towards pop (laughs) at all. (laughs) They never broke into the mainstream, they never played Lollapalooza, they never appeared on Dance Party USA, and they didn't want to do these things. Not that those things were bad, they just had no interest in doing those things. Uh, Remember, in these days, their live show pretty much consisted of Ogre sawing himself up and sticking needles in his body, which is not exactly something that would endear him to Nancy Reagan's Just Say No crowd, or the This Is Your Brain on Drugs crowd. Um... You know, all those wise words from the authorities that spent the 80s neck deep in Coke and whiskey. But yeah, the skinny puppy of 1990 was not going to compromise for wider acceptance, that's for sure. You know, you're either listening to their music on their terms or you weren't listening to it at all. Uh, The other just ridiculous thing about this album that's hard to get over is just how incredibly short it is. It's just 38 minutes and 32 seconds. Seven of its ten tracks are under four minutes. And it's just mind-boggling to me uh, with the the amazing quality of material on this record that it's so short. But I think Kevin said it best on his Patreon, uh, the episode where he speaks to the making of this record. He said, you don't need a lot of time to blow someone's mind. (laughs) What can you say to that but amen, brother? So how did Too Dark Park come about? Um, well, by all accounts, the band reconvened in 1990 in a surprisingly organic way because there had been a lot of buzz among the fandom and I guess the press that they weren't getting along. And I think it spilled out in some articles that Al's involvement with Rabies caused this rift, you know, with Al and Ogre on one side and Kevin Dwayne and Rave on the other. But in retrospect, Everyone agreed that there had always been some degree of tension in the band, so that tension had always benefited the music in the end. So Rabies, in that sense, wasn't so different. But the question was, how would they work moving forward? Would Al be in the mix? Would Kevin and Ogre even want to work together again? Uh, It turned out that Al would not be in the mix. He'd spend the latter half of 1990 touring with Revco to support Beer Steers and Queers. Ogre came back from the Mind Tour and found himself pulled into the subsequent project, which became Pig Face, but that wouldn't really get up to speed until 1991. In the meantime, he had no problem, I guess, getting back together with his 
skinny puppy bandmates to figure out their next step. And they all said it seemed just like the natural thing to do. No one really wanted to pursue the ministry-type sound any further. It was clear instead that the next album would really pick up where Vivisect 6 left off, with the next iteration of that pure puppy sound. Kind of along the lines of taking a fresh start, they decided to get Jim Cummins in to do all the artwork and to kind of give them a new coat of paint, so to speak. Uh, Jim being another local Vancouver artist. So going into 1990, all lights were green for a productive experience. Um, Now, I'm going to say at this point that a lot has been said about how Too Dark Park came to be. Uh, Like I said, for one thing, Kevin has been generous enough to make his own thoughts publicly available. And I'll link to that video in the description on the YouTube uh, video. You can listen to him tell his story in his own words about the making of this album. He talks about the context of it, getting back together, the approach he and Dwayne took to composition, their roles, responsibilities, as well as relating a bunch of really great anecdotes about that time. And if you're a puppy fan, you owe it to yourself to hear it from the horse's mouth. Don't take it from me. All I will say about it is that I found his description of how they wrote the songs to be really fascinating. Uh, Instead of starting out by programming beats, they started out with a bank of samples arranged across the keyboard, just random samples. And Kevin literally demonstrates in his video how they built each song's foundation by looping and playing those samples. And that's the basis for this album, samples. There's no really chords or drum patterns or like quote-unquote musical ideas like progressions or instrumentation. Everything flowed from the samples. And the one thing he said really caught my attention. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that every bank of samples contains a song. And he figured it was his job as the musician to find that song. And I just think that's really inspiring. You know, that sample-based approach in 1990 was for sure, was way ahead of its time. Other industrial rock bands were for sure using samples, mostly sprinkling in those horror movie samples into otherwise ordinary electronic songs. But on Too Dark Park, Skinny Puppy really turned that on its head because they were sprinkling rock and dance elements onto samples. So the result, I think we'll see, took the album into some territory that would probably have been otherwise really hard to get to using ordinary means of composition. So, yeah, let's take a look at this thing. Let's take a look at the album art. Let me crack this open here. So, you know, here's the inner sleeve, the disc, here's the nice tray card. The CD has an insert here that folds out. As you see, I'm really not a fan of these inserts that fold out. I find that it's just difficult to deal with them usually, but this one's pretty colorful, pretty nifty. Uh, I understand different formats of this record will expose different bits and pieces of this painting that Jim Cummins did and what you see here is really only about 20% of the whole thing. Um, If I recall Kevin said in his uh, podcast that Rave has the original painting. I do have one of the original tour posters in my archives. Uh, I spent many years having that thing on my bedroom and dorm walls The poster is the only thing that I've ever found that shows the entire painting, so that's how I know how much we're seeing here. Um, 
but yeah, the content here is some sort of cosmic horror scene, some kind of Lovecraftian demons or whatnot floating in space with blood and spiders and skulls and other awesome stuff. Uh, quite a lot different from all their previous art by Stephen R. Gilmore, which for the most part was very clean, very precise, and relied a lot on layering found elements and also on unusual typography. Um which has made it so distinctive. Uh, the TDP art was much more loose. It was also like strangely cartoony because regardless of the subject matter, the colors are just so very bright. Like he took them right out of the tubes. <laughs> Most of the earlier sleeves were these like muddy browns and greens. Um, this one sort of clubs you over the head with that bright, bright blue. And they would also use Jim's art on the singles too. And then on the follow-up album, Last Rites, only returning to Stephen Gilmore in 1995's The Process. But this would be their only album with such a bright palette, or at least on the cover. So let's dip into the tracks a little bit. Um, it starts off with a bang, going from zero to 100, so to speak, with a song called Convulsion. Now, there's an introductory quote at the beginning of the song about hallucinating, and then we're off into what I can only describe as a really bad trip. There's pounding drums, there's sheets of noise, and there's Ogre chanting downward, downward, which kind of sets the mood for the rest of the record. I mean, it's clear from track one that this is not going to be easy listening. <clears throat> you know, the strategy that is prevalent today among bands is always to put your most radio-friendly tune in that first slot and make sure that the first 15 seconds will just suck the user in and make them want to listen again and again, right? That was absolutely not what Skate Puppy were going for here. At least not for the general audience, you know. They kind of wanted to suck the listener in and then carve them up with a chainsaw. Uh, putting a song like Convulsion on the radio was never even a question. It was just never going to happen. Um, there's almost nothing melodic going on in this song at all. It's really just Ogre chanting over this swingy kind of drum beat and just this thick bed of noisy samples, which... If this is your thing, is awesome. So Convulsion goes into the next song, which is Tormentor, which is probably the funkiest song in this album, and they did release it as a single. Uh, Kevin said that he came up with most of the musical seeds for this album. Uh, the only real Dwayne song uh, was Bark, which was a B-side on the Tormentor single. And I think it's only appropriate that a band named Skinny Puppy should have a song called Bark. Anyway, Kevin based Tormentor on an earlier track by their side project, Hilt, which he and Dwayne had with Vancouver vocalist Al Nelson. And here I have the Hilt album, Call the Ambulance Before I Hurt Myself, which came out in 1989. And by the way, that's the year that Rabies came out, so let's reflect for a moment on how prolific Kevin and Dwayne were at this time to produce so much amazing music. Uh, this Hilt album, as you see, has 16 tracks. There's a lot of crazy and creative stuff on this record. If you like Skinny Puppy and you haven't heard Hilt, I encourage you to check it out. Um, Al Nelson is an ogre and definitely has his own thing going on. But these songs were basically written by Kevin and Dwayne, and they could have easily been Skinny Puppy tracks for sure. <clears throat> the big single from... This album was one uh, called Stone Man, which at first I thought was a reference to pot and may, you know, hey, maybe it is. And 
you know, I could be forgiven for thinking that. But it's also a reference to a serial killer in real life from India. And the music video for Stone Man is a real trip. The song is really groovy. It's all really good stuff. I encourage you to check it out. But the first track on this album is called Hilter. And at first, when I got this, I thought it was Hitler. But no, on second look, it's definitely called Hilter. And Kevin said he pretty much started Tormentor by altering Hilter a little bit to make the bass a little more funky. And from there, he pretty much just erased the rest of Hilter, its arrangement, just cleared it out, and wrote Tormentor with the same set of sounds. And that's why the two songs have a lot of the same bass and drum sounds. Uh, Tormentor is one of my favorite tracks on Too Dark Park. And like I said, it's surprisingly funky. Uh, The interplay between the bass and drums is really complex and interesting, and it's a definite head nodder. Um, Where they came up with Tormentor for the title, I have no idea. I don't know that Ogre's ever said, although it's generally understood that he wrote the lyrics in the throes of addiction, and some of these songs address that pretty directly, so that's no surprise. Um, As it is, the words let it out act as kind of a refrain, a recurring refrain in the lyrics. But again, a really cool song. like it a lot. And that goes into another head-scratcher, which is Spasmolytic, which starts with some pretty atmospheric and noisy samples and a little kind of spoken word intro by Ogre, and then quickly turns into this, <laughs> this lurching, stomping, noisy beast with these live drums, these amazing live drums provided by Kevin. And you can hear all about how he plotted out the song structure based on this drum performance if you watch his TDP video. Uh, the song in general is very much in the vein of convulsion. It's not even remotely pop, and yet they chose it for the second single and recorded a really peculiar video that's at once disturbing, dreamlike, and almost crazily amateur. It might be their purest expression of the B-movie aesthetic, to this point, given that it pretty much is a B-movie horror flick filmed in your dad's old VHS camera. Uh, if you watch the video, you'll see that Ogre is the bandaged guy with the gray face. Kevin plays this messenger guy on a bike. It was really creepy. And I don't know if Dwayne's in it or not. I, I don't recognize him, but let me know. Maybe you know that. Anyway, Ogre addresses addiction in his strongest terms yet in this song, repeating the phrase, kicking the habit over and over. Uh, But the drum performance, in my mind, and this song is really out of this world. Kevin said he did it live on his kit, all in one take. Uh, The only song on the album with a drum kit, really. There's, like, time changes. It goes from halftime to double time. It's all done seamlessly. It gives the song a real organic edge. And just, you know, hearing him bash the hell out of these things, and his timing is perfect. It adds a lot of energy and tension and just gets it right in your face. Really weird song, cool song, check it out. Uh, That goes into one of my favorites, which is Rash Reflection, track four. Uh, This is a song very simply built around a repeating loop, and Kevin said that he has no idea what it's a sample of, it's just something he like grabbed off the radio, but the entire track followed from that single loop. Uh, If this tune had an alternate title, which it doesn't, but if it did... um, Yeah, it might be kiss the master's feet, since Ogre repeats that phrase over and over. Uh, There are a few weird changes thrown in to build the tension, which they release by going back to the main loop. It's masterfully done, but yeah, a very simple song in terms of its composition. 
And in terms of the album's flow, I find it to be kind of a tonic to just the harshness of spasmolytic. The loop also just kind of makes it hypnotic. And that goes into another favorite. Uh, you know, hell, they're all my favorites. Let me just be uh, honest here. Uh, Nature's Revenge, because Nature's Revenge is a down-tempo tomb. It's probably the grooviest tomb on this whole album. just has a beautiful rhythm section. The drums and the guitar are perfect. Kevin said that apart from Spasmolytic, he pretty much played all the other drums with his fingers, just using the keyboard, like finger drumming. And maybe he did that here. I'm not sure. It sounds like they could have been played on a kit. It sounds very natural. This song has a really sweet bass line. Ogre does these really understated vocals. Evidently, it's about the environment. Though, to be honest, I've never really read along while he's singing, and I can barely make out what he's saying. A guy named Dale Plevin does a really fancy fretless bass solo in the middle, which is really rad. Overall, this track gives the listener a little bit of time to breathe. It's kind of like a chaser for side one. And then we go into side two, uh, which starts with another lighthearted environmental number called Shorelined Poison. And this song has two distinct parts. The first is pretty herky-jerky, this kind of noisy thing. And the second is a much more groovy part with this really catchy bass line. And they kind of melded these together and alternated between them to make this one song. And what's interesting is there's like this alarm sound, like a fire alarm at the end. And Kevin tells the story of that in his deep dive, and it's hilarious. And it's a good example of how he composed this album, his attitude going into this. If it worked, you kept it, period. Doesn't matter where the inspiration came from. And these moments of greatness, sometimes they're just happy accidents. And that goes into track seven, which is Grave Wisdom. This is probably my overall most favoritist track on this album. It's probably the poppiest of all. Um, you know, it has that verse-chorus feel to it, sort of, kind of. Uh, it's very hard-hitting with some of Ogre's most compelling vocal work. has great sounds, great lyrical imagery, great dynamics. I love how it starts really simple and just picks up the tension. And it kicks into a whole other gear at about a minute and a half in on the second verse. And then yet another gear a minute later where he's saying creatures running underground, all their cages rusted. It just sounds great at top volume. I wish they would have played this live on the final tour, but alas, they didn't. But it's a banger. Um, I love the drums. I love the synth bass. Uh, I love Ogre's vocals. And the whole thing just ends on a dime, which is really cool. Like what an ending. They really orchestrated the ending. And the whole thing is just three minutes and 44 seconds. And you're just left standing there at the end like, what the hell was that? <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, it slides right into track eight, which is TFWO. And as fans, we learned what that stood for on Pigface's Welcome to Mexico album, where Ogre sings it live and explains it for us. Anyway, this is pretty much the rock song on the album, featuring some pretty simple but muscular kind of guitar riffing. The vocal hook is this great one, though. And it has this fantastic fake ending halfway through that then just like builds back up into one more sing-along refrain. And I swear, you know, this tune has second encore written all over it. Uh, that's probably why Pigface picked it up to play it, because it's kind of a good one to rock out to. 
<laughs> and then we go into Morpheus laughing. This is another tune like Shoreline Poison that has two distinct parts that alternate. One's kind of got this synth arpeggio over some slow strings, and the other's the sort of rattly percussion piece. And at the end, the two parts kind of merge into one. And this is maybe one of my less favorite tunes on the album. It's not that it's bad. It's just, to me, not a lot distinguishes it in my mind. But it acts as kind of a breathing space between TFWO and that insanity. And then the final track, which is Reclamation. And I think they conceive this from the start as being the album ender because it's a track that, you know, builds and builds sample by sample, slowly amping up into this whirling maelstrom of noise with lots of cymbal rolls and swells and just building and building and finally ending with this like goofy vocal sample and then just an enormous explosion (laughs) and the explosion just fades out and that's it. The album's over and what a trip it was. Um, it gives me a feeling uh, like that final dive of the roller coaster before it rolls into a stop to lure in its next victims. So why do I love this CD? Why do I love this album? As I said, I love the albumness of it, uh, the way one track flows into the next. I think it works really well when you listen to it from end to end, maybe more so than some of the other puppy albums that all seem like maybe like a bunch of songs with some obvious like hits in there that's just my opinion Um, but I also love the surprise factor of it all I remember when it came out and how shocked we all were with the weird album art just the lack of chugging guitars and none of Al's lingering influence and I love that being noisy and kind of dark it still has plenty of hooks I can hold the entire album in my mind pretty well. I'm not left thinking, you know, what comes after that? Or what does that one song sound like? It's all there in my mind. And I didn't expect their next album to sound like this. But when I finally listened to it, I was pleasantly surprised. It's very listenable overall. But I have to admit, like, parts of it are pretty challenging. And it reassured those of us who had some concern that Skinny Puppy intended to sell out or go mainstream that you know, it wasn't their intention to do that. They were still out there to shock and challenge. And of course, they took Two Dark Park on tour. There's unfortunately very little little archival footage of that show. Some of it wound up on uh, Back and Forth Series 3 and 4, which I remember getting and watching that CD-ROM using QuickTime on my Pentium or whatever the hell it was back in the day. Um, yeah. <laughs> pretty primitive by today's standards. Uh, I remember in those clips, though, it showed Ogre had developed this character called Stiltman, and he performed part of the set on these huge stilts just kind of looming over the audience. Uh, They did actually hit my neck of the woods in that tour, but as I recall, they were playing on a typically snowy night, and I didn't manage to make the road trip. Again, I was just like, you know, a kid in high school, and it was so many miles away and I, I couldn't get there. I think some friends of mine did go see it, the bastards. No, just kidding. But yeah, it would have been amazing to see this performed live. I'm just upset that they didn't ever think to film it. Um, but this album, yeah, stretched our minds back in the day and quickly became something that we played over and over, like on car trips when hanging out at someone's house or whatever. Um, it was clear that Skinny Puppy's creativity was at a peak 
And whatever their internal relationships were, they were still functioning as a cohesive unit when they were making music. That's what mattered to us. In fact, this album plays now kind of like a concept album. And I'm not sure what the concept would be, you know, maybe addiction or environmental degradation or the dangers maybe of succumbing to powers that are beyond your control. And maybe that's where they were going with this cover art. Uh, All of these things are still relevant today. They're part of our human experience and probably always will be. So for instance, today it's 90 degrees here and it's over a hundred in many parts of the United States. So anyone who can't see how we've degraded the environment in the 30 years since this album was released is just deluding themselves. And I'm looking in the headlines, and it's all opiates this and fentanyl that. So anyone who can't see how addiction is still a problem is deluding themselves. So yeah, topically, this album is still on point, even though it's 30 years old. If it had come out last week, it would still be just as relevant, just as impactful. Sonically, it's still more adventurous than 99% of the stuff that comes out today. Uh, very little of which is interested in transgressing the boundaries of what the public is willing to shell out money for, or at least stream for, you know, millions of a penny. Not that, you know, money pays, plays much in part in today's music industry, what's left of it, uh, at least if you're an artist. It's probably making someone money. It's probably making the streaming services money, but not artists. But, you know, I read a lot of album reviews, and I've read a lot about too dark park that say that some people find it difficult to listen to for whatever reason it's too disturbing or even too annoying and as i said it's not really meant to be an easy listen (laughs) at all (laughs) certainly not all the way through but i find it a rewarding listen because as i said it takes you on a journey sometimes it goes to uncomfortable places like in convulsion and spasmolytic it's kind of front-loaded in that way it's kind of front-loaded to be difficult But if you get through that, you get to some of the other beautiful places it takes you to. And I think it's that contrast that makes it so interesting. And it's the reason why it's my favorite Skinny Puppy album. So usually I do like a little Where Are They Now segment. And I'm not going to do that again. I did one in the previous uh, Puppy episode. But I I did want to give an update to their current status, which I'm sure any fans are still aware of at this point. But as you know... They completed the first leg of their final tour in the spring. And uh, Kevin announced that plans are afoot for at least a few more shows in the fall. They do plan to make up the Pittsburgh show and will play a few others on the West Coast. And he wasn't giving too many details yet, but, you know, stay tuned. And I think all of us puppy fans can think that in theory anyway, in theory it's still mathematically possible that any of us could find ourselves at a skinny puppy show watching them perform live again before the year's out so they aren't quite done yet so don't give up hope hope is not completely smothered yet anyway there you have it kids one of the great industrial or possibly post-industrial albums of all time skinny puppies to dark park maybe not everyone's favorite but it is mine Maybe we'll do another summer album next, or screw it, maybe we'll have Christmas in August. I don't know. Anyway, stay tuned to Stronger Than Reason to find out what's next. We're on YouTube and on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Rock over London, rock on Chicago, prudential insurance, get a piece of the rock, and until next time, stay strong.